Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. Hey, good morning, you guys. How are you doing? Doing all right? It's good to see your faces. It's good to see you guys. We're, um, we are in a series called Last Days, and this is the third week of it, I think. Um, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about um, the book of Revelation this morning. I'm really excited about it, actually. Um, but before I do, my, my wife and I, we um, recently did what feels like maybe one of the most grown-up things we've ever done, which is we finished our, our, our will and our, our living trust. It's like, what happens to your stuff? Like, you know, like, what happens to my guitars after I die? You know, I started thinking about it, like, you know? We have a house and those things, and we want our kids to be taken care of. And it's, not, it's uncomfortable to think about, like, what if something happened to us? And, you know, so we filled out this questionnaire, and, like, anyway, it's very uncomfortable. But we finished it. It took us a long time, actually, too long, embarrassingly long. But we finished it, and, we, um, and then you have to go and sign it in front of a lawyer to, you know, make it real official. And so the lawyer said, you have to come to me, and I'm in San Jose. So we drove up to San Jose, and we went to one of these buildings that we don't have these kind of buildings around here, like this fancy, super high-end, like, glass structure, office building, you know? And we went in like we are, like, dressed in our, you know, our flannels and jeans, and everybody's in suits. And I was like, man, this is crazy. We feel really underdressed. But we did the thing. We signed it. It's done. Oh, big relief, you know? And we were walking out of the building, Amy and I and all of our kids, and we're walking out, and um, there's a little hand sanitizer station. And so Amy tells the kids, go, go get some sanitizer, you know? Well, this guy, as they were doing it, this guy walks up. This guy walks up, and he's standing in the lobby, and he's holding his phone, like, this close to his face. And he's just, like, looking at his phone, and he's standing, like, this far away from the hand sanitizer, right? He's just standing like this. So one by one, my kids kind of go up and go, you know? And, and they do it, and he doesn't, it's like he doesn't even know they're there. He's just like this, standing here. And then my wife sneaks in there and gets a little pump. And we're walking out, and she goes, you should get some. I was like, oh. Okay, you know, and I, so I'm kind of walking, I'm trying to, I was thinking, should I say, like, excuse me, sir, because, you know, I'm bigger than my kids, so it's like, I'm like, whatever, he doesn't even know I'm here, so I, I just crowd right into his space. I'm like 18 inches from his face, I just slide in, and I do the little pump, and nothing comes out. I'm like, oh, darn it. I realize, like, it's down at the bottom, it's like down to the, the last of it, you know, so I give it another pump, nothing. So I give it, like, one huge, I just go, boom, like this. And this huge glob of sanitizer, the, like the last of the bottle, shoots out. And it's right at that moment that I look down and realize he's wearing Crocs. You know, the rubber shoes that are like full of holes, right? And it just, and this, it hits him in the foot. And, and he, he goes like this. He goes, and looks, I don't think he realized there was sanitizer even near him. He just looks in my face. And we have this moment, two grown men standing like less than a foot apart from each other, and on his face is a question, what is that massive amount of liquid that just filled my shoe? And I had nothing for him. I, like, I was like, I, I just turned and like walked away, and that was it. It's the whole thing. I don't know to this day like, what he thought happened in that moment. But, but he's a grown man wearing Crocs. Like That's on him, right? Am I right? OK, all right, thanks. 
They were purple, okay? Like, that was on him. But I, I was driving away, and I was thinking, like, I was thinking about that. Like, I thought about it the rest of the day. I was thinking, like, we, this is kind of a microcosm for where we're at. Like, we have two, we have two states that we live in. One is, like, totally distracted, and the other is just, like, manufactured outrage. Like, where you look up and you just get so, like, you're just upset. You know, we look up out in the world for a moment from our distraction, and we're like, wait, what's going on? How could those bad people do those bad things to those other people that five minutes ago I didn't even know they existed, and in five minutes I won't even care? Like, you know, that's the two states we live in, like, distraction and just, like, outrage, and then we go back to our distraction, you know? Right? I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about, as I was reading Revelation um, chapter 3 here, and I was thinking about how Scripture tells us there's a better way to live than that. There's another way. There's a, there's a, there's a better way, a different option. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've already heard this verse. We've read it, and we're going to read it at the beginning of each of these messages. It comes from Hebrews, and the author says, In these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. And he's still speaking to us. This idea of last days means that the time period we live in now, from the point of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, all through where, where we are now and, and continuing into the future, these are the last days. And they're, they're, um, their characteristic is that Jesus is speaking to us. He's speaking to us. This is what uh, Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. He talks about this. He says, above all, you must understand that in these last days... Scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming, he promised. They're talking about Jesus. Why hasn't he come? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. That sounds familiar to me. He goes on to say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, this is a a term, come like a thief, a motif that you're going to hear a lot as we explore this book. All right, it's a theme that's going to come up again and again, that Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now listen to this. Here's what he says. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's our question. That's, that is our focus for the year, in fact. That's, we're going to dive in and out of this series on Revelation. Uh, we'll, come, we'll, we'll come to it, and we'll come back to it, and and we'll, um, we'll take a break from it, and we'll come back to it again. But our, our question for the year is, in light of this, in light of the, the... So science tells us that the universe had a beginning a finite time ago. It began to exist. It also tells us that the universe won't always exist. It has, a, it has an end. There's an end in sight. It might be a long time from now, but there is an end. In light of that, that everything around you that you see will not last forever, how should we live? That's our question. I was uh, meeting with my friend Chad. He's the campus pastor up at the Scotts Valley location. So if you haven't heard, we're in this season of partnership. There's our, our Scotts Valley Hope and then Coastlands and Aptos. We're all kind of uh, partnering together. In fact, we're teaching our way together at the same time. So Chad is teaching this same message in Scotts Valley. When I am done here, I'm going to leave and go to uh, Coastlands and teach this same message and then come back for the 11 o'clock. So it's pretty cool. Chad brought up this question, though, and I thought it was a really cool question. He, as we were talking about it, he said, he just kind of pontificated. He's like, what if Jesus came to one of our churches on Sunday and filled out a Connect card? Like, 
What would he say? You know, we have these connect cards, if you haven't heard, and we, we encourage like newcomers or first-timers or people that haven't, you know, might have a prayer request or a comment or something to share, like fill out a connect card and we'd like to hear from you. I wonder if we'd want to hear from Jesus if he came. Like what would he, what would he write? Um, these letters to the seven churches that, that um, are found at the beginning of Revelation are like Jesus' connect cards to the, the church uh, in the first century. And each of these, these letters begins the same way. There's seven of them. Tim taught on four of them last week, and I'm going to do three today. And it's, it's a short little letter where Jesus begins with a description of himself, and he ties it into the larger vision that, Je- that John has about, about Jesus, about a resurrected Jesus. And it seems to show this idea that, that the whole book of Revelation would have deep significance for these first century readers. So if you're on the receiving end of one of these letters, it would have very specific personal meaning to you. So this wasn't some, merely some confusing piece of prophecy that they would look at and go, I don't understand that, and that 2,000 years ago it then come to pass. That's not, that's not the idea. The idea is that it would have deep meaning to the people that were reading it. Um, a loving message from a resurrected Savior about how to live and love radically in troubled times. And we get to eavesdrop on that. You know, sometimes when I think about these pieces of literature like Revelation that are found in the Bible, um, it makes it easier for me to relate to when I go back and I read a little bit of church history and I, and I remember that real people were on the receiving end of these letters, like real people that, were, that had jobs, you know, and, and homes and they were paying taxes and they were worried about their kids' schooling and they lived and loved and died. These were real people. And it helps me to realize that this isn't just all conceptual. It, it has a basis in reality. And um, I was doing some uh, history reading a couple years ago and I ran across this man. His name is Polycarp, which as a side note, that is the coolest name in antiquity, Polycarp. Like, try to think of a cooler name, I dare you. You're not gonna come up with one. Polycarp, it's awesome. So Polycarp was the bishop in the church of Smyrna. That means he was the leader. Smyrna is one of the letters that Tim wrote, uh, read about uh, last week. He was in charge of the church in Smyrna. And he was a, um, a disciple of John, the apostle, who's writing Revelation. So John discipled him in the faith. So he was a very young man when John was old. And, he, and Polycarp lived until he was 86 years old. That's a long time in the ancient world. One day, Polycarp was in his home in Smyrna with some Christians, and they heard um, that the Romans were coming for him. They were done with Polycarp and his teachings, and they were going to come and arrest him. And so they, they, tr- they convinced him to leave his home, and uh, they took him to the outskirts of town in a small little villa there, and Polycarp said, I'm not going to run. I'm done running. This is where I stay. This is, this is where I live. And he prayed, and he had a vision and he spoke out loud. He said, I had a vision, and I'm going to be burned alive. It's a pretty dark vision, right? And sure enough, the Romans come, and they knock on the door, and his friends say, you've got to run out the back. We'll distract them. And he says, it, it, he's quoted as saying, God's will be done. And he stood firm. And the Romans arrested him. And they took him before a Roman proconsul. And the, Romans, uh, uh, the, the proconsul's name was Stadius Quadratus, which coincidentally is the worst name in antiquity, actually. Can you imagine? Like, your last name is Quadratus, and your awful, awful parents were like, let's call him Stadius. Stadius Quadratus. Yep. Awful. So they take him before this proconsul, and Stadius begins to question him and interrogate him, and they're trying to trip him up and, and cause him to, um, to reject the faith. 
and Polycarp stands firm. And, and Stadius threatens him with being uh, eaten by animals and being burned at the stake. And Polycarp says to Stadius, he says, your fires only burn for a little while, but the fires of judgment will not be quenched. And Stadius becomes enraged, and he starts making all kinds of threats against him. He says, we're going to beat you, and we're going to hurt you. And like a boss, Polycarp says, why do you delay? Come do what you will. Let's get this done, right? And so sure enough, they drag him into the town square. They tie him to a stake. In fact, he refuses to be tied. He says, I'll hold on to it myself. And they light the fire. And eyewitness accounts claim that watching this execution was like watching gold refined in a fire. Something miraculous happened in that moment. And people got saved, and another revival broke out, probably not what the Romans had intended. So these are real people these letters are written to. As we read these, let's remember that real people were on the receiving end. So this is the, we're going to begin in um, chapter one, verse, uh, sorry, chapter three, verse one. So if you have your Bibles, you want to look there. We're also going to have the words on the screen. This is chapter three, verse one, Revelation. As we look at these letters, I want us to keep in mind that we're keeping our, we're keeping our eyes peeled for two words, okay? They're going to come up a lot in these three letters. One is repent, and the other is victorious, okay? So will you help me out? Will you look for these words with me? When you hear it, let's take note of it. So repent, victorious, right? You ready? You guys ready? There we go. All right, here we go. Verse 1, to the angel, to the angel. Now, this is how all of the letters start out. They're being written, it says, to the angel. But this Greek word angel just means messenger. It's likely not a celestial being. It means a person, a person on the receiving end. In fact, a person just like Polycarp, right, receiving this letter. To the angel of the church of Sardis, write these words. These are the words of him who hold the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, he says. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and, here we go, repent. That's what he tells the church in Sardis. Repent. Now, Tim did a great job talking about this word last week, repent. Uh, We've come to think of it as meaning to turn and walk away, right? To turn and walk away. Now, if you skip to the end, I'll just spoil it for you. Revelation ends with destruction on a cosmic scale. Destruction of all the things that have brought pain and suffering to human beings. That's what happens at the end of the book. And there are some people that will insist on holding on to those things that are, that are bound for destruction. And this raises a question. It's an uncomfortable question. Does God send people to hell? Does God send people to hell? Historically, as a church, we've done very poorly answering this question. We've really messed this one up. Um, But it's an important question because at the end, God seems to be throwing all of the things that harm human beings away. And it does seem like some people hold on to those things and are thrown away with them. The answer to this question is it's complicated. That's why why we've messed it up. It's, It's hard. Whatever... Whatever hell is, and the Bible is not generally very clear about what it is, um, but whatever it is, it appears to be something that people freely choose. They want it. People want it. A few years ago at work, we were um, 
doing a little bit of uh, moving things around, remodeling, and I, we demolished this old shed, and I was taking these pieces of wood, and I was throwing them into this big dumpster, big, big pieces of wood. And I picked up this one piece of wood. It was rotten on all sides, and I was about to throw it in the dumpster, and I looked, and I saw this beautiful moth. I mean, moths are usually pretty plain, right? It's the butterflies that are pretty. But this one was just beautiful. Its wings were open, had all this color, and it just looked soft and velvety. And I didn't want to touch it because, you know, there's that, I don't know if it's true or not, but they say you're not supposed to touch a moth because it, it'll hurt it, right? It won't, like, it'll hurt the, its wings. I didn't want to touch it, so I was kind of like, you know, like, get off, moth. You know, I was like, scootaloo, you know? I was trying to, like, speak to the moth. I don't know, you know, you know? And I, was, I wanted to throw this piece of wood in the dumpster, and finally I was like, moth, like, you were meant for this world to fly free. You're beautiful. You should go. This wood, it's meant for destruction. It's going to go. And, and no matter what, I am going to throw it away. If you hold on, you're going to go with it. And I don't want that for you, but it's your choice, you know? And I threw the wood, and he flew away. And I, I'm so happy he made that choice. I am. Because I wanted him to live. I wanted that for him. Repent means to turn away for th- from things that are bound for destruction. Okay? All right, let's keep going. But if you do not wake up, he says, I will come like a thief. There's that motif that Peter brought up, right? That idea that Jesus is coming in the night, and no one knows when he's going to come. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. This is not talking about incontinence, by the way. This is... Um, no, it's talking, this is apocalyptic vocabulary to describe being made righteous. So to stand in white linen mean to be, means to be made righteous in the sight of God. He said, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is, here we go, here's the other word, victorious. Remember we said repent and victorious, right? The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Now, victorious means to overcome, to climb over an obstacle, Okay. So let's, let's keep that word filed away for later. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Now, here's how he ends each of the letters. It's the same. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's to us. That's a reminder at the end, like, there's something here for us. Right? Do we have ears? Yep. Let's listen to what he has to say. So what have we heard? What did we hear? That's the first letter. There's something that Sardis needs to do, he's saying, which is repent, so to turn away from things that are bound for destruction in order for them to be empowered to experience the kind of victory that Jesus has experienced, right? That's what we heard. All right, let's look at the second letter. This is to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. He says, write these words. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. It's good for us to remember in reading these letters that no matter how well you think you might know the scriptures and no matter how much you've read the Bible, John has read it a lot more than us, and he knows them really, really well. I mean, like, shockingly well. Like, almost every other line connects to some other part of the scriptures. He's sewing everything together. This is, like, this is like the last episode of the last season of Lost, you know, where they, like, show all of the secrets. Like, everything is being revealed. He's not holding back. Like, he connects to everything. There's, like, over 500 references to the Old Testament in this one short book of Revelation, right? And this is, this is a really cool one. 
When he says the key of David, what he opens, no one can shut. This is a reference to Isaiah 22:22. Isaiah tells us that there was a man living in the household of King Hezekiah, the ancient Israelite king. His name was Eliakim. And Eliakim's name meant resurrection of God. That's a cool name. Not as cool as Polycarp, but still a cool name. Eliakim lived and worked in the household of King Hezekiah. And his job, his sole role was as doorkeeper. It was up to him to to, uh, grant or to deny access to the house of the king. Probably a lot of people wanted to see the king. They wanted an audience with the king. Hey, king, I'd like to see you. And it was up to Eliakim to, to either allow or reject access to the king. And he's making this comparison to Jesus. Jesus allows or denies access to the father, right? He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. John himself would write the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, quoting Jesus as saying, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. It's the same idea. If this sounds exclusive to you, it's because it is. There is one name under heaven by which people are saved, and it's Jesus. He goes on to say this, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Have you ever, have you ever had a person that really just gave you trouble? You know, like maybe someone in your workplace or someone in your family. It's just like, it's just like they're out to get you. It's as if they're your enemy. And justice seems to be in short supply, you know? What Jesus is promising to these people here is, I've seen what's going on. I've seen those people that are antagonizing you. And I want you to know that it's not for you to create justice for yourselves. That's, that's my purview. There will be justice. It will come. It may seem slow in coming. It seems slow sometimes, doesn't it? But it will come for those that are faithful. That's his promise to these people, but also to us. He says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Oh, here we go. The one who is victorious, right? There's that word again. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write in them my new name. We talked about hell for a minute. We might as well talk about heaven. You know, Whatever heaven is, this seems to make it clear that it's, it's not a place. It's not a, at least not a physical location. You know, when, when a loved one passes away, we comfort ourselves by saying, they're in a better place. They're in a better place. And that's fine. I think it's a fine thing to say. Or we might say, well, he died and she, she passed away and, and went to heaven. And when we say it, we kind of, what do we do? We kind of look up like, we went to heaven, you know, like, like it's right up there or something, you know, like it's up there in the clouds. And, and John is kind of being playful with this image here. But you see how he turns it? It's, we're, we're not going there. It's coming here in this image, right? It's coming down out of heaven. 
Whatever heaven is, it's something that happens to us. It happens to the earth as God's presence arrives and envelops the good world that he created. He loves this world. He made it. It's not a bad place. It's a good place. So he wants to return to it. This is probably why Revelation seems like it's so full of violence, especially towards the end, because he must rid the world of violence in order to prepare it for his coming, to make it habitable for God again. You might say he's making earth great again. You might say that. And he's the only one that can do it. He is. He's the only one. Put your trust in him. He's going to do it. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what did we hear? What did we hear in this letter to this church? We heard this. Jesus is the one who determines who will remain when the presence of God returns. It's up to him. Whatever it means to be victorious, it looks like being one who remains, who remains faithful. If Jesus came to our church today and filled out a Connect card, would he say, it appears that you have remained faithful? Gosh, I hope so. When the Lord comes, he's going to make everything right. That's his promise. You, you may feel like right now you are experiencing a bit or a lot of injustice, but justice is on its way. All right, here's the good news and the bad news. I'm going to give it to you straight. The good news is we're almost done. I did two of the three letters, right? We're almost done. The bad news is this is the hard one, okay? This is the tough one. This one is like when I read this, this seventh letter, um, it feels like, like a punch in the stomach is what it feels like to me, all right? So let's see if you experience it the same way. I hope you do because trouble loves company. All right, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, he says, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I was reading this from the New English version the other day, and it says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And my kids were like, what's vomit? And we're like, to throw up, you know, to, to puke. And they're like, oh, gross, Jesus is going to throw up. Well, that's what happens when you eat bad fish. That's what happens. You throw up. Some of you will get that later. That's a slow burn. It's, you'll, you'll get it later. Don't worry. Uh, historians point out that Laodicea, you've probably heard this before, I have, uh, was benefited by a group of powerful hot springs that fed the city through a series of aqueducts. So they had these hot springs, and they fed the city. Pretty amazing, you know? Uh, pretty cool technology for 2,000 years ago. I think I misunderstood this detail for most of my life. I, I thought it meant that don't be a lukewarm Christian, right? Jesus, you know, to be hot meant to be zealous for him. To be cold would be to turn your heart away from him. He'd almost rather you be cold than just be lukewarm, right? That's how I, that's how I heard that. I don't know if you heard it that way as well. But I don't think that's what it's saying. Hot and cold water actually both have equal value in the ancient world. Hot water, uh, of course, is great for purifying and for washing. And cold water actually was great for, um, for being refreshing and for, for um, refrigeration. Romans used uh, cold water, snow melt, for refrigeration. These are both. But, but lukewarm, tepid water, which is what he's comparing this church to, is a breeding ground for bacteria and for parasites. It ser- and most importantly, it serves very little purpose to those in need. I believe there's a parallel for us here in the American church today, in the Western church, if we have ears to hear it, 
Let's see if we can hear it. He says this, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Do you remember Polycarp? Remember what the witnesses said his execution was like? Like gold refined in the fire. I wonder if Polycarp thought about this verse as he was going to his death. So you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. You know, this church was renowned for having this, being the center of the banking industry of this region. And they made, uh, they, they made medicine there, a special salve that, that uh, helped people with their blindness. And they made textiles. He's, he's turning all of the things... He's turning the tables, Jesus is. All of the things that they believed made them uh, strong, you know, their wealth and their power. And he's showing them it actually made you weak. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Does he love us? Yeah. He loves us, so we should expect some rebuke and some discipline from time to time. So be earnest, and here we go, repent is what he's saying. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give them the right to sit with me on the throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says. Whatever this vision is, it's transcendent. It was not written to us, but it has deep meaning for us. Do you see it? Do you hear it? You hear the meaning for us. So what do we do about this? What do we do about it? Well, I think we could do this. We could begin by rethinking the way we think about those two important words, victorious and repent. I mean, who doesn't want to be victorious in their life, to overcome tough obstacles? Of course, we would all raise our hands. We want that. But I think to do that, we have to realize that Jesus wants to turn our idea of how we think about power upside down this is, this is the natural order of the world. Power is greater than weakness. It's better to be powerful than weak, isn't it? When you're weak, it limits you. When you're powerful, you can do more. This is the natural order. This is the way it works in this world. And Jesus is introducing a radical new way of thinking about this. And it works like this that meekness is greater than power. Meekness is greater than power. And it comes down to these two words. So, so repent and victorious, right? To be victorious, the, the Greek word there is nikos. It's where Nike gets, you know, the shoe, Nike, it's where they get their name, nikos, Nike. It means, it's a powerful word. It's a strong word. It means to conquer with overwhelming force. That sounds pretty good. Sounds good to conquer. I want to conquer. I want to be victorious. But to do that, Jesus is saying we have to repent. And that Greek word is metanoia. It means literally to change your mind, to allow your mind to be changed about the way we think about these things. Are we, are we out there trying to get this because we believe that? 
Or are we humbling ourselves, accepting his discipline and his rebuke so we can become this to the benefit of other people? Metanoia means to change your mind. So here's my observation. I just have one. There is no victory without repentance. There's no victory without repentance. If you want to live the victorious life, if you want to conquer the things in your life, the only real way to do that in the economics of Jesus' kingdom is repentance. Going all the way back to Babel, the Tower of Babel, when people try to achieve greatness without humility, they fall in darkness, and they become the cause of misery to the less fortunate around them. He said to the Laodiceans, he said, Here I am, I stand at the door, and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. Nay with me. When we hear these words, and we hear them without repentance, we make this mistake of thinking that Jesus wants to come into our house, the house of our life, and that he's interested in making some cosmetic changes, the things we're interested in. Jesus, come in. I was wondering if you could help me. I need a new coat of paint, you know? I'd like some new granite countertops with a sizzling backsplash, right? You know? Let's help me move the furniture around inside of my, the house of my life. You know, my, uh, my job just isn't very satisfying, you know? Um, there's some people that I don't get along with. Could you help them just move away, you know? Could you come inside my house and fix my problems? When we hear that knock and we hear it without humility, that's what we think is happening. But when we allow our mind to be changed, we hear the knock and we realize our problems are not cosmetic. They're systemic. They're fundamental. He wants to sit down at a table so he can have a conversation that's going to sound like this. I think we need to go down to the basement. You have some foundation problems. You built your house on a flawed model, and we need to talk about it. And I hear this knock myself. I, I've been following Jesus for four decades, and I still hear the knock. I hear it in the voices of my children. I hear it in the gentleness of my wife. I hear it in the word of God. I hear this knock, and he's knocking at my door. And I look out, and I go, it's Jesus again. Dog on it. Oh, he's going to want to talk, you know? And it takes a changing of my thoughts and my mind to allow him to come in so he can do business with me and do that important work. He wants to tell us, he wants to tell us today that we're never too far along, that we don't have something that we need to walk away from. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, We'd love to help you find out. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers and donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.